me to make it easier I'll put the passage up on the screen so we can all be on the same page Galatians chapter 1 and verses 1 through 5. If you've found it, I would invite you to stand with me as we read this portion of God's Word. And again, I will read the odd-numbered verses. I'll invite you to read the even-numbered verses with me. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Brothers and sisters, these are God's words. Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will abide forever. Please be with me as uh, join with me, I should say, as I breathe a word of prayer and ask for the Spirit's help as we come to this portion of God's word this morning. Oh, Father, what a privilege we have to come and to worship and to sit at your feet. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this blessed opportunity that we have to study the scriptures, and to hear you speak to us through them. Father, as we come to your word, we come acknowledging our neediness, acknowledging our total dependence on you. We thank you for the opportunity to sit at your feet and to listen to your word. And so, Father, as we come to this time, we ask that as we peer into things that angels long to look into, we pray that your Spirit would open our minds and our hearts to understand and to comprehend your truth. Let us leave here today rejoicing in your gospel and in the power of your Spirit who is alive and at work in us. Father, it's our custom as always to pray for local area churches, and so we take a moment this morning to pray for Table Rock Fellowship this morning. Especially pray for them as their pastor, Pastor Bill, moves towards retirement and they seek a new lead pastor. Father, we pray that you would send them a man who is passionate about your word, passionate about your gospel, and passionate about your people. Father, may their hearts be drawn towards him and his towards theirs. May they grow deeper in their knowledge of the truth and above all, may they through their lives and through their witness, give you all the glory. Father, that's our prayer in all things, and it's our prayer now as we break together the bread of life. We pray that Jesus will be made much of in this time. Ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Please be seated. This morning, I have tagged our text that we're going to be studying a gospel worth living and dying for. A gospel worth living and dying for. I think I've mentioned it a few times to the folks who are regulars, but I am an avid student of history. Uh, absolutely love the subject. I absolutely love digging into the past because I am con thoroughly convinced, especially in this day and age, 
that if you don't have an understanding of the past, you have no understanding of the present, and you definitely will be confused when the future happens. And if you know anything about the study of history, you know that the study of history is primarily the study of people. And it's a study of really important people more often than not. As you look through the annals of time, you're hit with the reality that there are some people who seem to rise above everyone else. They're not better humans than everyone else, but they seem to accomplish much more and seem to rise just heads and shoulders above all of us. One of those characters in history for me is the character Sir Winston Churchill. I think I've alluded to him in a number of sermons. Um, I would argue one of the most important people in Western history, in my opinion. And one of the things you discover about Winston Churchill when you read his speeches, which are available to read, and you read about his life, not perfect man, had his issues, a great many of them. But it seems that when the occasion needed it and when the time required it, he was willing to step up. And for years I've been curious, I've kind of done a deep dive into the life of Winston Churchill and sought to wonder what, sought to understand how is it that this man who was a celebrated veteran got kicked out of government and then recalled to government, columnist, writer, a man who could turn a phrase like nothing else. What was it about this man that made him see the oncoming threat of what everyone, uh, the man everyone called at that time, Mr. Hitler? What was it that he could see about that man that made him speak out in the vociferous way in which he did? And he was a lone voice at times. What was it about him that made him do that? And then it hit me a few years ago that it wasn't him in particular. If it had been anybody else, he would have done the same thing because what was propelling him wasn't a personal grievance. It was principle. Th there was a principle that had so gripped this man that he was willing to go against his own political establishment in order to say, no, we will not appease Mr. Hitler, not now, not ever. And I would argue that Western civilization owes him a massive debt of thanks for being willing to be that one guy. Well, beloved, as we come to Galatians chapter 1 this morning in our series, Ready to Defend the Gospel, I think something of that concept of principle rises out of these few verses. As you remember last week, I said that we've called this series Ready to Defend the Gospel precisely because as we look at the life of Paul, as he's going to expound it for us in these first two chapters, he gives us an insight into why he was willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with these false teachers. Just to give a bit of a review of last week, we introduced this letter. And in introducing the letter to the Galatians, we saw that Paul is writing to this church who are in danger, if not having already, defected from the gospel. They're tempted, as it were, to abandon the pure message that they had heard for a false message. The, the false message was this idea that, yes, you need Jesus, but in addition to Jesus, to be saved, you need to keep the law of Moses with its covenant sign of circumcision. And that unless you did this, you could not be saved. Well, Paul says, no, that's not the gospel. And so he takes pen in hand by inspiration, and we get the letter to the Galatians. 
And what we're going to see this morning is that there was a message that so fueled Paul that he was willing to take pen in hand and go to war against those who would corrupt the purity of that message. A little bit of technical detail about this passage that we're in. We're still in the starting gate to the letter of Galatians in a lot of ways. Verses 1 through 5 form what we can call the greeting or the salutation. Again, if you've read any of Paul's letters, there's nothing amazing about that. Paul does that all the time. But one thing that Paul does, just following the convention of the day, one thing that he does that he's a master at, in my opinion, is that he uses his introductions more often than not. You can go check me on this this week. Read the introductions to Paul's letters. More often than not, he sets up for you what he's about to talk about in his introduction. If you pay close enough attention to his introduction, you'll find all the themes, or at least in seed form, the themes that he's going to pick up in the letter. He's just brilliant at distilling his main point right up top so that you know exactly where he is going. While the form of this greeting is, you know, the same as Paul's other 12 letters. Just the content of this, however, I'm going to argue is a little different. You're encountering something very different when you come to this particular letter. To kind of demonstrate this, just to kind of set this up, tell me to the letters of the Romans real quick. Let me show you something. Romans chapter 1 and verse 7. I just want to kind of demonstrate something here. We look at a couple of Paul's greetings. I want, to s- I want to see something that's very different about these ones to the one in the g- letter to the Galatians. Galatians. Romans, excuse me, chapter 1 and verse 7. Paul says, To all who are in Rome, loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that Paul doesn't just say, to all who are in Rome, but he has this little detail here, loved by God and called to be saints. Does something a little different. Turn over to the next book, 1 Corinthians. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their laws and ours. Again, do you see the amount of detail he adds to that introduction? But he doesn't do that when you go back to Galatians, does he? He kind of just goes, Paul an apostle, not from men or by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father raised from the dead to the churches of Galatia. You'll know also in some of Paul's other introductions, he spends a lot of time saying, I'm praying for you guys. I love you guys. I miss you. I wish I were with you. Or I don't, or in case Romans, I don't know you, but I'd like to get to know you guys so that, you know, we can, you know, I can minister to you guys through some use of my spiritual assignment, my spiritual gift. But you don't see that here in Galatians. Paul's greeting is almost terse. And how short it is. And I think it's short like that for a reason. It's short like that on purpose. I put it to you, beloved, that the reason why it's so short, if you understand the context of this book and these false teachers who are 
peddling a message and calling the people to defect from the gospel that they had believed and accepted. If you read this letter closely enough, I think you can see why Paul's introduction is terse. He doesn't have time to waste. There's no time to, as it were, get down to business. But that being said, let me not press that point too hard, however. Listen to this. It's from the commentator William Hendrickson. He said, quote, Although it is true that the apostle finds little to praise but much to deplore in the churches of Galatia, this does not mean that he has given them up as being hopeless. Far from it. Though he is perplexed about them, he still regards them as Christian communities upon whom accordingly he is fully justified in pronouncing this salutation. So, in other words, sure, Paul doesn't have time to waste, and it's not a very pleasant situation that he's writing into, but he's still holding out hope that these are indeed believers, that they have indeed heard the gospel message he knows because he preached the gospel to them. And so as he writes here, Yes, he's terse, but he's not unloving as he writes. I think in these few verses, what you have really is Paul summarizing the gospel message that he had preached to the Galatians in a few short words. Remember I told you, Paul sets up his topic in his introduction so that you can follow him as he goes. Well, that's what he's doing here in verses 3 through 5 this morning. In verses 3 through 5, he reminds the Galatians of the truth that they had once embraced and were now in danger of abandoning entirely. Think about it. What was the message that had so captivated the heart of the apostle? Have you ever given thought to that? What was this principle? I just mentioned Churchill and the principle that he held to. Well, what was the principle that held Paul so much, that he was, that gripped Paul so much, that he was willing to live and even die for it? Let's make it a little personal. What is the message that ought to lay hold of our hearts and not let us go? Here's my big idea for this morning. If you don't remember anything else from this sermon, here's my big idea. (laughs) If we're going to stand firm in the gospel and give our very lives for it, we have to know the gospel as it really is. We can't be passionate about a message that we do not know. And so we need to know the gospel as it really is, that it is a message that is from God, about God, and for God's glory. That the gospel is a message from God, it's about God, and it's for God's glory. To help us in that goal this morning, I want to consider five gospel hallmarks from this opening salutation. Five features and hallmarks that I think showcase God's glory and work for our good. I think if you pay attention very closely to these short verses, you get the entirety of the gospel message in a really short space. This is going to be a really good message, particularly for thinking about how to present the gospel to those who don't know the Lord, because I think Paul gives us some essential features here of this gospel message that are worth noting. So I don't want to waste too much time. Let me get straight to work. Five hallmarks I want to consider this morning. First of all, consider with me that the gospel is a message about God's grace that brings peace. The gospel is a message about God's grace that that brings peace. So look at the beginning of verse 3 with me. He starts off by saying, grace to you and peace. 
from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Grace and peace. Those words have become so ubiquitous in Christian culture. We just say them all the time. But I want to argue that when Paul uses these terms, far from being just a really nice greeting, they hold very special significance, especially in a letter like Galatians. These rogue teachers, the Judaizers, do you remember from last week, those of you who were here, what it is that they taught? That, you know, in addition to faith in Jesus, you need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Why is that important in light of these opening words? Well, faith family, I'll put it to you that what Paul is doing in these opening words is that he is, as it were, firing an opening, an opening shot. This is his opening salvo right here with these words. He's planting a flag in the ground, as it were, right in the face of these teachers and saying, no, not here, not now. We are not about to start mixing the law with grace and trying to come up with something that we call a gospel. And so he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul speaks about grace in your Bible, it carries the idea of a free favor. It carries the idea of a kindness that is undeserved. That yes, you are in need, but you're in need because you put yourself in need. And if anything, you should just be left to yourself. But God says, no, rather than just leave you to yourself, what I'm going to do is extend what one dictionary describes as a beneficent, excuse me, I always get this word wrong, a beneficent disposition towards someone. <laughs> that you need help, and I, even though you don't deserve it, I am more than willing to extend that help to you. I do quibble with the dictionary, though, because I don't think it's just a disposition when you read the Bible. When you read the Bible, yes, it's a disposition. Yes, it's a quality that is in God, if you will. But God doesn't just talk about grace. He isn't just, isn't that grace is just like a warm feeling that exists in God. I, I affirm with the creeds of old that God is without parts and passions. So that's a whole other conversation. But what we find when we hear this language of grace in the Bible is not just the desire to help or the willingness to help, but that God actually does something about it. That when we talk about grace, we are really dealing with God's almost too good to be true, but it really is love and help extended towards needy sinners, sinners who don't even deserve the help. The false teachers could claim all they liked that folks needed to jump through every hoop to be saved. But Paul makes it clear that, listen, that's not how God operates. God's method of operation is by grace. Years later, Paul will put it like this, Romans chapter 11 and verse 6, if you're taking notes. Now, if by grace, then it is not by works. And what he's talking about, if there is God's promise. If God's promise is by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. If I can put it to you, um, any scientifically minded people in the room? I, I, I'm, I was not much good at science. I was, again, I was an English nerd at school. But I, I remember enough from school that I was taught that there's the difference between an element and a compound. That, again, science people, check my homework on this, literally. I, I'm reliably told that 
The difference between an element and a compound is an element is a pure by itself. That compound is when you take multiple elements and you bring them together. Am I on the right track? Okay, Darren's, okay. The engineer in the room says I'm doing a good job here. God's grace is not a compound. It's not, okay, you kind of kick in two cents and then God kicks in 98 and then you have your full dollar. Yeah, God did most of the work, but hey, I helped. That's not quite how this works. God's grace is not a compound, it's an element, it's by itself. And how easy is it, beloved, for us to try and, if I can just get practical for a moment, to try and add our works to the purity of God's grace? Maybe, wait a minute, Kofi, I, I know I can't, be, I can't be saved by my own works. I, I agree that. I affirm that 100%. Okay. Front door legalism. I think I talked about this last week. If not, forgive me. There's a difference between front door and back door legalism. Legalism, legalism through the front door says, you're saved by what you do. Just flat out. In some way, shape, or form, you contribute to your salvation. Through the front door. And most of us are very, you know, we can see that coming like, nope, 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 you don't get to come in here. But I would argue that there is a backdoor form of legalism as well. Where... Rather than saying, okay, you're saved by your works, what we basically say, yeah, you're saved by grace, but you, you know, now that you're in the house, God's favor is extended to you purely because you do what you're supposed to do. And you know how, you know how subtle that is? We're not denying salvation by grace. We're simply saying that now that you're saved, you've got to keep yourself saved. Or that maybe that's a very harsh way of putting it. The other way is, well, if you do these things, God is pleased with you. Now, let's be clear. The Bible, the Bible does say that our obedience is pleasing to the Lord. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2, that we should walk in love, which is a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Yes, our obedience is pleasing to the Lord, but let's be clear. That's an evidence that he's at work. That's not the ground of our standing. You, you, do you appreciate that difference there? The, the difference between evidence and ground of standing? Ground of standing, like, just like this ground. Like, I'm standing on this. This is the foundation on which I'm planting my feet. That's very different to, okay, here's the evidence that I am planting my feet on this foundation. Evidence doesn't earn you anything. But it's very easy, I think, at times to think that, well, because I do these things, because I read my Bible a lot, because I pray a lot, because I keep on believing that that's why God is pleased with me. One of my friends, he refers to this as gospel. No, it's not quite law. It's not quite gospel. It's a weird compound thing. And Paul would have us to understand, based on Romans eleven six, that if you mix the two, more often than not, you end up with just law, just works. Please hear me on this. God's gospel doesn't save those who, as it were, pre-qualify. Newsflash, nobody has pre-qualified for the grace of God. You might think you have, but you haven't. And in fact, nobody on this blue marble ever will. No, God's gospel saves those who actually haven't earned it. Isn't this Paul's point in Romans chapter 3? Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ alone. Romans 3, 23 and 24. 
If salvation is indeed by grace, that would have made complete nonsense of everything these false teachers were saying. And I think Paul is making that point by emphasizing the word grace right from the jump. When that grace comes into contact with the sinner and it brings about salvation, the end result is peace. That's why he can say grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the ancient world, this, this word for peace carried the idea of an end of hostility. It was used in ancient writings as the polar opposite of what happened when you were at war. Through the gospel, the enmity that existed between us and God, it squashed, it stilled, it's done. Through the grace of God, we who were his enemies, we who were estranged from him, we, we come into a state of peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But again, how, how many of us, I want to make this real practical, how many of us regress, and regression is exactly the word I'm thinking of, because it is a regression. How many of us regress to living as though God tolerates us, but unless I do the things that God tells me to, he might just swing on me if I annoy him enough. And let's be fair, as human beings, we recognize that some human beings function that way. That some human beings operate on the principle of you have to keep them happy by doing whatever they want, whenever they want, exactly the way they want. And again, let's not get out of balance here. The Bible makes it very clear that God desires for his people to obey him. We are not talking here about a hyper grace or a cheap grace where, you know, get saved and then live however you want because nobody really cares, you know. You got your ticket punched for heaven, you're all right. That, that's, that's not what's being emphasized here. No, that's not the case. But at the same time, we have to keep law and gospel distinct. What God demands from us is different from what God does for us in the gospel. That reality of peace with God can't come through clinging to our own efforts for salvation. Paul would have us to understand that the kind of peace that we long for, the both the state of being at peace with God and the inner condition of peace that comes from that, that that can't come by grace. That only comes, uh, that comes, excuse me, that can't come without grace. It's only by grace that we come to experience that peace. And that's the first hallmark of a gospel that's worth living and dying for. That's the message that gripped Paul. And I appreciate I've been on this point a little longer, but it's crucial to kind of get this down. The, the, the biblical gospel is a message that is truly about God's grace that brings peace. Well, I want to hasten on, I don't want to be before you too long. Secondly, the gospel that Paul preached, it was a message about our triune God. A message about our triune God. Not only is the gospel a message about grace from God that leads to peace with God. It's a message about our triune God. Please note that Paul says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul zeroes in on the role of the Father and the Son in our salvation, that this grace and peace that we enjoy, they find their source in our triune God. Now, some of you are probably looking at me and saying, wait a minute, Wait a minute, Kofi. Paul said, God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Where did you get triune from? That's two. Can't you count? <laughs> well, I can. 
excuse you, <laughs> but the reason I say triune God is this. In the world of theology, we have a principle. The, the principle says that when you see one member of the Trinity working, even if one is just mentioned, the other two are not too far behind. So that when you see the Father being mentioned, yes, the Son and the Spirit are not that far behind. When you see the Father and the Son being mentioned, the Spirit's not too far behind. When you see the Spirit being mentioned, Father and Son are not too far behind. One is maybe taking the preeminence in this particular function, but it's not that you separate the Trinity. It's not as though Paul, in doing this, kicks out the Holy Spirit and says, you're not important. It's all about the Father and the Son in this moment. No, the Spirit is still present. And so when we talk about this biblical gospel, when we talk about this gospel that is worth living and dying for, it includes the reality that this gospel comes to us from our triune God. That's important because I would argue that when you read the Bible, the Bible presents to us a number of realities relating to our triune God and our salvation. Follow me here. I would argue that the Bible teaches us that the gospel flows out of a relationship. It flows out of a love relationship between the Father and the Son. That the Father has had an eternal love for the Son. The Son has had an eternal love for the Father. Okay, Kofi, again, it sounds like you're kicking out the Holy Spirit here. No, I'm not. Because the Holy Spirit is the bond between the Father and the Son. He is the one who keeps the love between the Father and the Son functioning through all eternity. You'll hear people sometimes talk about the gospel and say, well, God was lonely, and so he created... Ma Some of you know how much I hate that phrase, but if you don't, I hate that phrase. <laughs> Please, do not say it around me. Because God was not lonely. It's not that God was sitting there saying, it would be nice if I had someone to hang out with. You know, yeah, angels, eh. Yeah, I, I guess, but mm, I'm kind of, you know, lonely, I missed, no, no that, that, that was not what was happening in eternity past, no, God has always existed in a love relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, there's always been this beautiful relationship between the three of them, and out of that relationship, the Bible teaches us purely on the basis of God's grace that an agreement is formed, you can call it a covenant, Theologians refer to it as the covenant of redemption. I know some don't particularly like that language. I have no problem with it for the most part. But no matter what you call it, the Bible clearly teaches that in eternity past, the Father decreed to select a people regardless of what they did. And that he agrees to select this people. And that he then commissions the Son to be the representative of this people. That this people who would fall and would sin, the Son would be the one to redeem those people. And the Spirit would be the one to take the work of the Son and apply it to the people that the Father chose. All of that flows out of a reality that says our God is triune. You can't have a God who is solitary and have him affect a plan of salvation like the one we read about in the New Testament. Don't believe me? Look at every religion that toys with the doctrine of God on some level. They are all legalistic. We don't have a very large Muslim community, at least that I'm aware of in Medford. Growing up in inner city East London, no, the vast majority of my friends are Muslim. One of the creedal statements of Islam is the statement that God is one. That there is no God except Allah. 
and that Muhammad is his prophet. Tawheed is the technical term. That he is just one by himself. That he has no partners added to him. That's what they think Christians believe, that we have added a partner to uh, Allah by saying that Jesus is his son. In fact, the Quran says that he has no son and he has no wife, that he should bear a son. Clear, he's by himself. And if you look at Islam, it's an entirely legalistic religion. The hope of the Muslim is that one day, his good day, on the day of judgment, his good deeds will outweigh his bad deeds. Well, what kind of hope is that? Okay, we really think, okay, that's that religion over there. Well, let's talk about some of the so-called Christian religions that do this. So Roman Catholicism, which pays lip service to grace, it just says that grace is not alone. So yes, it's grace, but you also need these sacraments through which grace is dispensed. And if you do this, then you can participate and you can receive the grace of God as well. What about Mormonism? Mormonism flat out teaches the concept of personal worthiness. That through your obedience to the word of wisdom, tithing, being a good Mormon, getting a temple recommend, that through all of these things, you can make yourself personally worthy of salvation. And salvation in Mormon terms is not what we think of as salvation. It's ultimately, well, when you die, you get to go become a god over your own planet. In fact, the Mormon scriptures are explicit in their definition of grace, that we are saved by grace after all that we can do. And I'm not here to bash other people's sincerely held faith. That's not my point. My point is simply to show you that, oh, by the way, Mormonism toys with the doctrine of God too. Because <laughs> you've got a multiplicity of gods and if you work hard enough, you can get the upgrade from being human to a deity. Every religion that toys with the nature of God ends up toying with the nature of salvation. Can't help it. You mess with one, you mess with the other. Well, beloved, the Trinity is something we cannot afford to mess with. Why? Not just because it's a matter of theological orthodoxy, but because the very gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. The gospel is a message about God's grace that brings peace. The gospel is a message about our triune God. Here's the third hallmark of the biblical gospel. It's a message about a sacrifice. It's a message about a sacrifice. You see it there at the beginning of verse 4? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. The biblical gospel would be incomplete without this reality that God gave himself in the person of the Son. To feel the full force of the statement, I want you to kind of do a little bit of back-to-front reasoning with me. Kind of reason backwards through this verse with me for a moment. First of all, consider with me that sin is a problem. Sin is a problem. The Bible defines sin as not, you did something I don't like. But it actually defines sin as the transgression of God's law. So 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, the Bible says, Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. At the thought level, at the word level, at the deed level, all of us, every time we sin, have broken God's moral standard and raised our fist at his power. 
as the late great R.C. Sproul used to say, sin is cosmic treason. <laughs> I think he was onto something with that. I mean, if that is true, if sin is a problem, first and foremost, because it's an affront to a holy God, yes, your sin may have effects for other people, damaging effects for other people, but that's secondary. First and foremost, sin, Psalm 51 tells us, against you and you alone have I sinned. Well, if that's the truth, well, secondly, sinners must be punished. Not only is sin a problem, but sinners must be punished. I mean, as human beings, we feel this, don't we? We, we fundamentally recognize that when someone does something, unless you're a sociopath of some sort, we generally recognize that when somebody does something that they shouldn't do, And someone doesn't make it right. There's an internal feeling within us that says, someone needs to fix that. Like, that's not right. Something is just, something about that is just, no. But isn't it interesting, when you talk to people about God and his justice, they suddenly don't have a category for that. Almost as though, yeah, people sin, but God is loving. Why should God care? God just loves, you know, God likes forgiving. I love sinning. It's a great arrangement. <laughs> Isn't it funny that we expect more justice from those who even, well, I believe all human beings believe there's a God. That's a whole other conversation for another time. But those who, even those who say we don't believe in God, we somehow expect more justice from other human beings than we do from the perfect being who made us. Well, when you read God's word, God, God's word is abundantly clear. God is clear. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, when he creates man and puts him in the garden, he says, listen, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Ezekiel 18, 4, God says, look, every life belongs to me. The life of the Father is like the life of the Son. Both belong to me. The person who sins is the one who will die. Okay, that's the God in the Old Testament. He's kind of got an anger problem. Okay, stop that. Romans 6.23, New Testament, other side of the book. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is clear in his word that not only is sin a problem, but sin must be punished. But as you read the Bible, thirdly, sacrifice is presented as the price. Sacrifice is presented as the price. In the Old Testament, we start to see this thread emerge about the importance of sacrifice. Again, go back with me to the garden. Adam and Eve sin, and what does God do? The text says, well, he takes skins and he clothes them. But where did he get the skins from? Animal had to die. He slays an animal and he clothes them with the skin. Well, fast forward a little bit. Cain and Abel, when they bring their sacrifices, or they bring their offerings, I should say, God accepts the sacrifice of a life. He doesn't accept Cain's offering of the fruits of the ground. Fast forward to Egypt. The children of Israel are delivered from Egypt on the back of a sacrifice. A lamb sheds its blood. They eat the blood. They eat the lamb and they paint the doorposts of their house with the blood thereof. And God explicitly says, Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, the blood will be for you a sign upon the houses where you live, so that when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
not to destroy you when I pass through the land of Egypt. Well, fast forward a little more. When God institutes a system of worship by which he teaches his people what he demands from them, how it is that they can live in relationship with him, he provides offerings both for the individual and the nation to make right the problem that sin causes. Do, do, do you catch that sacrifice is kind of a big deal to God? But the problem is, as the letter to the Hebrews tells us, the blood of bulls and goats and animals could never be enough to deal with finally with the problem of sin well what that puts us in a predicament doesn't it because if we keep sinning and if our continued sin leaves us in a precarious state then what we need brothers and sisters is a sacrifice that is sufficient to once for all deal with the problem of sin and the bible tells us finally that the son is the payment so you get to Isaiah chapter 53 and you see this character, the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh, who gives himself as the sacrifice for sin and the people are reflecting on this reality. And what the Old Testament says in shadows, the New Testament says with beautiful clarity. So Peter in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24, he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins we might live to righteousness and then he quotes isaiah 53 by his wounds you have been healed your sin my sin our sin it places us in this very precarious this very dangerous position where john 3 36 the wrath of god abides on us that would be a problem that would be a massive problem but the good news of the bible is that jesus pays the debt that our sin requires the good news is that the payment for sin that sin required has been paid by someone else that forgiveness has come to us signed sealed and delivered in christ's own blood the Judaizers might have paid lip service to Jesus. They may have even talked about the cross. Like, yeah, that's the, that's the, that's the entry. You know, that, that gets you in. Okay. But don't forget this other stuff you need to do. But in reality, their message ultimately became about something other than the cross. Remember I told you, element and compound. You add something to the compound, it doesn't, it doesn't stay the element anymore. It's something else now. Now the gospel was not enough. But the beauty of this is that Paul was sold out on the cross. We're going to see it again and again in Galatians, how he emphasizes the fact that he is fully committed to the cross of Christ. Not only because it was the message of the cross that brought forgiveness of sin, but did you see the other part of verse 4 there? Who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. Uh, that needs a little bit of explanation. The Bible refers to the world in a number of senses, one of which is as a system that is arranged. That's the, other, the word for well, age here is a different word. It's sometimes translated world in other places. The other word the Bible uses is the language of a world that is arranged, that is set up in opposition to God. That there was a system that says it is opposed to everything that is good and everything that comes from God. 
Colossians chapter 1 refers to it as the domain of darkness. This present evil system of reality, as it were, is opposed to God. And once upon a time, we were citizens of that system. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. That was your testimony before you came to know the Lord, if you know the Lord here today. That was all of us, but God in his mercy and in his love and in his grace, God essentially initi initiated a rescue mission behind enemy lines. And he gets behind em enemy lines and he extracts us, Colossians 1 says. He translates us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the son that he loves. I love how the Puritan Matthew Henry put it. He said, Jesus Christ has died to deliver us from this present evil world, not presently to remove his people out of it, but to rescue them from the power of it, to keep them from the evil of it, and in due time to possess them of another and better world. Oftentimes Christians struggle about their relationship to the world. You know, we talk about the subject of worldliness. I preached about the subject of worldliness here in our church. Understanding that through the sacrifice of Christ, we are delivered out of this present evil age. Doesn't that make our relationship to this world easier to think about? I, let me explain why I think that's the case. It's very easy for us to get into a very legal mindset about how we deal with the world. Almost as though the way, okay, as a Christian, I need to be separate from the world. The Bible says that. So what I need to do is put a bunch of rules in place so that then I can keep my distance from the world. What's the problem with that? How many rules is enough? And so you end up with people like in the tradition I grew up in. If you're a Christian, you don't own a TV. There may be many good reasons not to own a TV in 2021, but I'm going to argue that's not one of them. If you're a Christian, you don't, you know, if you're a lady, you don't wear certain hairstyles. Well, if you're a man, you don't wear certain hairstyles. Okay. You might need to explain that a little more. If you're a Christian, if you're a good Christian, you'll dress a certain way. Well, I agree. I think the Bible does talk about modesty, and I think that's a whole other conversation to be had in 2021. But your style of dressing doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. It's very easy to get legal about our approach to the world. We make it seem as though the answer to being too attached to this world is, if I just throw another rule, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And I'm not saying that's wrong in and of itself, but if that's your only weapon for dealing with worldliness, you're just going to find yourself burned out, tired, and unable to do it. Having clear guidelines isn't wrong, not at all. But if you think a list of rules will change what goes on in here, that's a problem. Can I put it to you that it's actually daily reminding ourselves of the fact that, listen, because I've come to know Christ, there is a 
decisive break with this world. The, this world's siren song can't attract me anymore because I've heard a better song where I'm going. It's daily coming to and remembering that Jesus rescues us from this present evil age that I would argue truly weans us from a love for this world. I've got to hasten on. The, the gospel is a message about God's grace that brings peace. It's a message about our triune God. It's a message about a sacrifice. Fourthly, it's a message that's in line with God's sovereignty. It's a message that's in line with God's sovereignty. You see that there at the end of verse 4? Who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. What the false teachers were peddling was an understanding that originated with them. It didn't originate from the will of the Father. God's design for the law was never that the law would be a way of salvation. And Paul's in fact, Paul, in fact, will expound that in later chapters. They had come up with an understanding in their own mind. But get this, God's gospel is God's gospel. The gospel is his idea. One of my favorite verses, I call it often, 1 John 4, 14. We have seen and we have, we have seen and we testify that the Father sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Who did that? The Father did that. World's most famous Bible verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I think we quote that so many times we miss the fact that, and this is one reason I like the CSB, it translates it very differently to most translations. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. The way in which God manifested his love was in sending his son. But who took the initiative there? God did. Titus chapter 3 verses 4 and 5. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. Who's the Savior here? God's the Savior here. Verse 5. He saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You read the Bible over and over and over again, and it's clear that God is the one who took the initiative in sending his son, which means, kind of spoiling my own next point here, but if that's the case, God is the one alone who should receive the glory. Beloved, you can't make the gospel about you, your choice, your believing, your good behavior, your happiness, your peace, your fulfillment. That's a burden that you can't handle and an itch you can't satisfy. But can I put it to you that it's actually, libera it's actually liberating to know that God's will is in the driving seat. Listen to this. It's from a Greek scholar called Kenneth Wiest. Usually books like this are kind of dry and very mechanical. I try not to quote them too much. But I read this. I was like, that was good. He gets it. Listen to this. Quote, the outstanding philosophy of religion in this present pernicious age is that acceptance with deity is by means of the good work of the individual. Every system of religion except that in the Bible bases salvation upon the good works of the worshiper. The Judaizers were part of this present evil age. Their system, not content with dragging down its devotees to destruction, was attempting to pull down the Christian church with it. Paul says that the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus is that which will rescue the poor lost sinner from the clutches of the pernicious teaching of the Judaizers. End quote. That's somebody who gets it. 
That's somebody who understands that, listen, this gospel is God's gospel. He is sovereign in the administration of it. You can't dangle a carrot in front of people and say, do this and God will save you. Do this and God will be pleased with you. No, salvation is purely by God's initiative. Kind of leads to my final point this morning. The gospel is a, <coughs> excuse me, a message about God's grace that brings peace. It's a message about a triune God. It's a message about a sacrifice. It's a message that's in line with God's sovereignty. Finally, the gospel is a message that gives God all the glory. So Paul can end it out, verse 5, and say, To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The final hallmark of the biblical gospel, of Paul's gospel, the gospel that he was willing to live and to die for, is that through that gospel, God receives all of the glory. The redeeming work of the Son brings glory to the Father as the plan, the covenant, the agreement that they conceived of before time was even a thought. That plan comes into fruition. And as sinners are brought into the body of Christ, God receives all the glory. But that's here. In future, the redemption of sinners means that one day, all of us, you, me, all the brotherhood of God throughout the world who have come to place faith in Jesus Christ, that one day we'll stand before God with a righteousness that wasn't ours, with a righteousness that we didn't deserve. And on that day, we'll sing Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. The only reason that we'll be able to sing that is not because, you know, we, we added our two cents. You know, God, I helped. No, it will purely be because of God's grace. On a personal level, that's one reason that I love and cherish and passionately champion the doctrines of grace that came out of the Reformation. Yes, I believe them because they came out of Scripture, and I also believe them because they are the best, in my opinion, at giving God all the glory. I mean, it's easy to read words like we read in the letters to the Galatians, where Paul is addressing some of this, and to you think, well, these Galatians, they're a bit dense, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, seriously. How could you possibly think that this message makes any sense? But can I put it to you that we do the same thing? Oh, let me not be so harsh. We're prone to doing the same thing. God loves me because of my obedience. God loves me because of my church attendance, because of my baptism, because of my level of emotional response. Have you noticed that with all of those things, and I can, we can multiply things as you talk to people, in all of those things, it's not really about faith, is it? This is a helpful distinction. The difference between faith and faithfulness. I have to credit my friend Mike Abendroth for this, introducing me to this. Faithfulness is a good thing. I mean, it's a fruit of the Spirit. The Bible commends that. But faithfulness is not why God saves anyone. God saves people on the basis of his grace, and that grace is appropriated by faith. That's very different to faithfulness. I don't trust in my faithfulness 
again, as my ground of standing, why it is that God loves me and saves me. That There's no assurance there because you, are, you know it. You have the... Some of you saw a rather funny video I posted on Friday talking about driving and nearly getting hit on the freeway and being really annoyed. I didn't particularly feel very Christian in that moment. Bear in mind I'm sitting in my car drive wearing a fair God t-shirt. Didn't feel very God-fearing in that moment. If I were trusting in my ability to keep it together all the time, moments like that, multiplied as they are, would keep me out of the kingdom. But praise God that your salvation is in condition on your faithfulness. Yes, obedience is wonderful and it's good, but obedience is a response to God's work of grace. It's not the currency by which we purchase God's grace. Because after all, if you purchased it, it's not grace anymore, is it? If you're here or you're listening and you're not saved, listen, God is not going to save you on the back of how good you are. I mean, I hate to be that guy, but you'll never be good enough for God. You're not even good enough for you. <laughs> I mean, that would be bad news, wouldn't it? But think back to everything we've talked about this morning as I draw to a close. This gospel message is a message of grace it's the message of god's beneficent disposition towards us that led him to act in the sending of his son beloved isn't that a message worth living and dying for uh, I mean, isn't that a message worth giving everything for not out of some kind of debtor's ethic where you know god did all these wonderful things for me and now i need to pay back the favor but out of a gratitude that is fueled by a constant understanding of his grace. Isn't that a message that's worth living and dying for, beloved? I believe it is. I believe it is. And Father, we are so grateful for your grace. We, we are so grateful for the fact that anything that we enjoy we enjoy because you have been so good to us. That it's not because of anything that we have earned or could earn. There's nothing we could earn except the damnation that we so rightly deserve. But through your grace, through your love, and through your mercy, you have dealt with the problem of sin once and for all. And so we are able to walk in newness of life. We're able to live lives that extend towards you in grace, and even in moments when we fail, you pick us up. Father, help us that we would be empowered by this gospel. Help us that we would always live in a fresh recognition of it every day. That we would preach this message to ourselves every day. Asking these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, beloved, would you stand with me as we sing our closing song this morning?